Well, thank you all for being here today and say it's a privilege to be here to worship with you as a family of God. I want to thank Jimmy for his prayer on my behalf and uh, pray also that uh, what I have to say will be helpful to you in some way. As we continue our uh, walk through the book of Ephesians here, talking about walking a walk that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called, we want to talk about walking in love and light today as we begin Ephesians chapter 5. We've been using this verse in, in chapter 4 verse 1 as sort of the thesis for the second half of this series, which is, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And Paul has spent three chapters laying out very rich theology and what God has done for us, the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, everything he means to us. And he says, therefore, because of all these things, I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling. And as we consider everything as God, God has done for us, certainly that should affect the way that we behave, the way that we want to walk in this life. As we begin in chapter 5, Paul is going to start with this, this idea of being imitators of God. And if you'll remember from some of uh, Justin's sermons in Thessalonians, he talks about imitation and how imitation can be a good thing, imitating uh, those who are godly. Paul talked about you became imitators of us. And Paul said in other places, follow me as I follow Christ. And so here we're talking about being imitators of God as he begins this chapter. So he says, therefore, be imitators of God. And we always want to take note of the word therefore. I heard Brother Jonathan Minson on his podcast recently say, uh, when we see the word therefore, we need to ask what it's there for or why the word therefore is there. Uh, and to do that, we look before. And so we go back to Ephesians chapter 4, the end of that chapter, verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And this is the last part of verse number 32, I think that Paul is referring to when he talks about, therefore, be imitators of God. As we mentioned in this last part of chapter 4, Paul goes through this sort of laundry list, will you, a formula for change. He tells us, don't do this, instead do this, and this is why. And so as he concludes that, he talks about how we can forgive one another, and we can love one another, and we do that for the same reason that God forgives us. We do it because of Jesus Christ, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so as we do that, Paul's going to then take that concept of us imitating God in our forgiveness, and he says, therefore, be imitators of God. Not just in the way we forgive other people, but in our entire walk, in our entire way of life. Be imitators of God in your life. And that's certainly something we should strive for. And yes, we do look to people in our lives that are godly and wise people, and we can imitate the things that we do, and certainly we should and can do that as long as they are imitating God themselves. But we understand that ultimately what we are doing in our lives is we are imitating God. We are imitating Christ by the way that we walk in this life. He says, I want you to be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, it doesn't take a, a genius to figure out that children do what their parents do. If you're a parent and have a child that can walk and talk, you start to see signs pretty quickly of your children imitating you. The things that you say, the things that you do, mannerisms, and not talking just about physical appearance. You know, I, there's a Somewhere out there in the DNA universe, there's a, uh, a Westbrook stamp that got smacked on my face uh, when I was born. I look just like my dad. I've, complete strangers have come up to me and said, I don't know who you are, but I know that you're related to Mike Westbrook's because you look just like him. 
But we're not talking about necessarily physical appearance. I do things, mannerisms, the, the things that I say, that, I, that my wife will tell me, my brother will tell me, that was just like dad, or that was just like your dad. And you know, my mannerisms, I'm sure, things probably about my dad that would annoy me, I probably do those things. We do, do the things our parents do. Uh, you know, sometimes you hear your kids say things, and you know they're imitating you. Sometimes you're proud of that. Sometimes you're not proud. Sometimes you're ashamed. But what, what Paul is saying here is be imitators of God as beloved children. We are God's children. As he reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are members of God's household. We're his children. And we need to imitate him as his children. Just as a child would imitate their parents, hopefully in the good ways, we need to imitate God because guess what? God's ways are only good. And if we're imitating God, we're, doing, we're on the right track. So he says, I want you to walk in love, which is where part of our title comes from. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. How are we to love one another? We talk all the time about the world's definition of love and God's definition of love, God who is the inventor of love. And we, we understand and realize that the world's definition of love is, is not the same as God's. We understand that. Well, how do we walk in love as God's children? Well, we do it as Christ loved us. You know, it's interesting as you read this passage, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There's a, a passage later on in this chapter when Paul is talking to husbands in their relationship with their wives. He says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I was talking with our, uh, Craig Hill one time. We were talking about this passage, and you know, I was, I was talking about the, the relationship of a husband and wife and how special that's supposed to be, and there's a difference there in our relationships. And, and Craig, I think in some ways he was playing devil's advocate, but he says, well, he tells you to treat everybody else the same way as he tells you to treat your wife here. He says, it's the same word, and Christ loved us. You love, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for us. And so you don't have to, his point was, there were a lot of men who mistreated their wives back in this day. And he's trying to tell these men, hey, you need, your wife is your sister in Christ as well. And you treat her the way you treat. I still think and maintain and contend that there's a special relationship between the husband and wife, obviously, that we share, that we don't share with other people, obviously. Beyond the physical relationship, there's a special relationship there. And I'll Craig's not here to defend his position, so I won't spend too much time on that. But I will say this is the same wording. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Our love should be sacrificial. Uh, the, we hear that word agape love. That's the word here. It's a, it's a sacrificial love. It's a love that's a choice. It's not just how I feel about someone, but it's the choice that I make to love them and do for them and sacrifice for them no matter what. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This has very quickly become one of my favorite passages in the Bible as I've studied through the book of Ephesians. I love the love of God here on display. He spends the first few verses of chapter 2 talking about how you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You walked according to the course of this world. But God, because of his love, made you alive. That's the kind of love. That's how Jesus Christ loved us. 
And he's saying, that's the kind of love I want you to walk in. In a sacrificial love that, that cares for other people despite what they may do to you, despite how you may feel about them, you love them anyway. And let that be the way that you walk. Remember the word walk here is talking about our manner of life, the way that we live every single day. Paul says, you walk that way. And now he's going to make a transition here as he goes into verse 3. And it may seem like he's turning in a completely different direction, but he's really not. He's going to talk about fleeing immorality. And he uses this crucial conjunction here, the word but. And what he's saying here is, listen, if you're going to walk in love, if you're going to be an imitator of God, you cannot be doing these things. So he says in verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So this is the opposite of imitating God. He says, if you're going to walk that walk that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called, if you're going to walk in love, if you're going to walk in imitation of God, you can't walk this way. You can't be this kind of person. And this, certainly this is not an exhaustive list of sin here. Um, Paul goes into more detail in other places, and even the longer lists aren't completely exhaustive, I suppose. But all these things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, he says, let it not even be named among you. You know, there's not a whole lot to figure out here. There's not a lot of complexity to what he's saying here. And we know this is the way that we're not supposed to behave. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, I don't want to read this whole passage. He's, he's talking about urging them to all the things that they should be doing as Christian, being patient, don't repay evil for evil, do good to one another. Pick up in verse 17, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. I like the consistency in Paul's message as he, he, as he writes from church to church, different congregations. And there's a couple of things about this passage here in Ephesians 5 I want to just sort of pick up on and notice that kind of relate to this passage in Thessalonians because he doesn't go into this, a whole laundry list of sin here or anything, but there's a couple of ideas here. Number one, this idea that it must not even be named among you. And I feel like that's sort of a, uh, this attitude of getting as close to the line as we can, flirting with danger. We know when we tell kids, don't touch that. Well, immediately, what do they want to do? They want to go touch it. And they're going to get as close to it as they can without actually touching it. They may even take their finger like this and look and, I'm not touching it. I'm, not, I'm getting closer, but I'm not touching it. And this idea of, of flirting with that danger line, flirting with disobedience. He says, let it not even be named among you. And I, and I feel that's sort of a, a way of saying, I don't want this to even be a rumor. I don't want you even getting close to this. And certainly we shouldn't take that to the level of the Pharisees who and made their own customs and traditions and elevated them to law to avoid that kind of thing. But that's the same kind of principle. Don't even get close to the line. Don't even let it be named among you. And then this other idea at the bottom here, let there be thanksgiving. So instead of talking foolishly or, or having filthish, filthiness in our talk, give thanksgiving. And I think there's some important things to consider about that. And if you notice, he makes some connections here, I think. This whole abstain from every form of evil. Just, just don't even, if it even comes close to looking like evil, abstain from it. Stay away from it. Don't even get near it. And then the idea of thanksgiving. He says here, give thanks in all circumstances. Um, as you consider this, there's a couple of things to think about here. 
number one, where he says this foolish talk, which are out of place. When is foolish talk or when is filthy talk, crude joking, when are those things out of place? Well, he doesn't specify a time because they're always out of place. It's never right to do that. It's never the time or the place to talk this way or to have this kind of behavior in our life. This is always out of place. And so he's saying here, abstain from every form of evil. Don't even come close. So let's consider a couple of these ideas as we go into this. Number one, the idea of Thanksgiving. What does this have to do? You know, he's using this. It's not quite the, it's the, the formula for change we talked about last time. Don't do this. Do this. This is why. But what he's saying is don't, be, don't have this foolish or talk or filthy talk in your life, crude joking. Instead, let there be Thanksgiving. Be thankful. And I feel like this relates to us in just about every aspect of our Christian walk. And I think we often downplay the concept of thanksgiving. Recently, uh, Grayson turned 16 a couple of months ago, and, it, and it's really hard to find a used car right now. I don't know if y'all have noticed that. We finally found one for him, and we set him down, and we had the talk about, okay, this is a blessing. Your mom and I have paid a not insubstantial amount of money on this car. It's mine, but I'm letting you drive it. But you need to be thankful for that. You need to take care of it. You need to be responsible. And I feel like that having that idea of thanksgiving in our lives, we tend, to be, we tend to take care of the things we're thankful for, don't we? If we're thankful for what we begin, hopefully Grayson will be thankful for his car and not wreck it in the first couple of weeks. That's what I'm hoping. We'll see how that goes. But you know, when it comes to our Christian walk, if we're thankful for what God has done for us, isn't that going to play a part in how we take care of our salvation as we consider that? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, verse 3 being sort of the thesis statement of the entire book of Ephesians, if you want to think about it that way, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or praises be to God. Blessed be God. Thanks to God, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Paul says, we want to thank God. We want to bless God. We want to acknowledge God for what He's done for us. Always keep that in our minds. Why? Because He chose us in Him. What did He choose us for? He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And the idea of thanksgiving goes a long ways. And I think we realize this even subconsciously if we don't, if we don't really directly think about it. You know, as we prayed this morning, you know, I didn't do a count or anything, and, but I know Brother Jimmy said, Lord, we thank You for this several times at least, and we see that in a lot of prayers. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for that. We thank you for this. We thank you for that. And I think even subconsciously, we realize the importance of thanksgiving in our lives. And when we're truly thankful for what God has done for us, that's going to affect the way that we walk. And then this idea of flirting with the danger line, flirting with disobedience. Let's consider that for a minute. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 2, this ought to be familiar as Brother Trevor's been in 1 John for a while. He says in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And Trevor has been talking about this in terms of the fact that sometimes Christians view the commandments of God as a burden. That we walk around like Eeyore and that we're always depressed because we're obeying the commands of God, but look at all this stuff out in the world that we're missing out on all the things that this life has to offer that we can't take part in because we're obeying the commandments of God. And what he's saying here is His commandments are not burdensome. Don't feel like you've got to flirt with that danger line. 
Don't feel like that the line of disobedience offers you something that's going to be so much better than what God can offer. Don't even get close to it. How do we know that we love the children of God? When we love God and keep, obey His commandments. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Jesus said, if you love Me, keep My commandments. Being a moral person, staying away from immorality, it's not a burden. It's what's best for us. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life. They might have it more abundantly. Never think that you've got the short end of the stick because you're a Christian. His commandments are not burdensome. Let it not even be named among you. Paul's going to now talk about the deceptiveness of sin in verses 5 through 7. I think he's doubling down. He's going to talk more about the things that he's already mentioned. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. He's going to dub- but he's doubling down on it, and he wants them to know for a fact, you've got to stay away from these things. Look at what he says here in verse 7. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance with the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. But he's doubling down here on this concept. You can't do these things. I just want you to know. I want you to understand and realize. You may be sure of this. If this is the kind of life that you live, if this is the way that you walk, and we talk about walk, we're talking about that way of life, that continuous living in sin, whatever the sin might be, you will not inherit the kingdom. It won't happen. He says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. I, I use this passage in Colossians because if there's ever a parallel passage, it's this one right here. And look at the similarities, the wording in these two passages. Everyone who is sexually immoral, impure. Sexual immorality, impurity. Who is covetous, that is idolater. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Therefore, do not become partners with them, but now you must put them all away. You see the consistency of Paul's message as he writes to all these churches? You cannot behave this way. You can't live this way. You may be sure whoever whoever is like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It just won't happen. There's a deceptiveness to sin. Let no one deceive you with empty words, he says. The world's going to try to deceive us. Satan's hard at work. He's going to try to deceive us. The people that follow him are going to try to deceive us. Sometimes we try to deceive ourselves, don't we? We tell ourselves lies about our own sin, that it's not that bad, or there's a reason for it, or we justify it, or we rationalize it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Same consistent message. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit it. Don't be deceived. Verse 11, notice this. And such 
were some of you. You were this way. Some of you people in Corinth used to be this way. But you're not anymore. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You can't walk that way anymore. You were that way. You're not anymore. Now you're different. Don't be deceived. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is the world we live in right now, in case you haven't noticed. Take whatever hot, bu- hot button moral agenda thing that the world doesn't want to talk about or doesn't want to admit is wrong. Whether it's abortion, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's just free sexuality, however I want to be, whatever I want to be with whoever I want to be with. The world is going to try and take the moral high ground. We see it all the time. It's my body. It's my choice. You're taking away my rights. That's wrong. You don't know what it's like to be a woman. You're a man. You don't have an opinion here. It is wrong for you to tell me that I can't have an abortion. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Well, I can, I can love whoever I want to love. Isn't the world a better place when love is in it? And it doesn't matter if I love a man or a woman or whatever I want to love. Love is love, and you're trying to say that we don't need love in the world. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is the world we live in. And don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you with empty words. They're going to try to say, I have the moral high ground. They don't. God has the moral high ground. His word has the moral high ground. And you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. You may be sure of that. Why does he give this warning? I was thinking about this in light of the Calvinist teachings. I'm sure Brother Trevor wishes here to hear me to hear me hammer on the Calvinists a little bit because he wanted me to do that more throughout this series. We talked a little bit, and I think in our very first sermon in Ephesians, about ideas of Calvinism and how they're diametrically opposed to what the truth of the Bible says. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Calvinist teachings, there's a doctrine, they call it the doctrines of grace or the tulip doctrine that talks about the way God interacts with and the way our salvation works and things like that. The the tulip doctrine very, very quickly is the word T stands for total depravity, which means that every single person who's ever been born into this world is born into sin. There is no innocence as a child. It's just you're born a sinner and you can't make the decision to do anything good on your own. Okay, the letter U means unconditional election. And that's, where, that's why a lot of Calvinists like to camp out in the book of Ephesians, especially Ephesians 1, where he talks about being chosen before the foundation of the world or elect before the foundation of the world. What that means is God picks and chooses who's saved. That before the world was ever formed, God looked down through the stream of time and said, that person's going to be a Christian and they're going to be saved, but that person is not and they're going to burn in hell. And I've made the choice ahead of time. The letter L in tulip means limited atonement, which means that the grace of God, the atonement that Jesus offered at the cross for sin is limited only to those who are elect. In other words, only the people that God looks at and says, that person's saved, only they can receive the grace of God. Only they can receive the atonement from the cross. 
Even though the scriptures say to us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But limited atonement, that's a real thing. I in TULIP stands for irresistible grace, which means that when God has determined that you will be a Christian, you don't have a choice in the matter. That His grace is irresistible. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart and changes you into someone who can actually do good things and serve God, whether you choose to or not. And finally, the P, which is really what I want to focus on this morning, the perseverance of the saints, which is simply once saved, always saved. If God has determined that you're one of the elect, He has looked down through the stream of time and said, this person will be my child, and the Holy Spirit is going to enter their heart and make them a new person no matter what they choose, and they will never lose that salvation no matter what happens. That's perseverance of the saints. That's once saved, always saved. And you're going to find a lot of denominations who may, may claim that, oh no, we're not Calvinists, but I guarantee you, almost guarantee you, they're going to believe in perseverance of the saints. So here's the question. If that's true, why the warning? Why is Paul warning us about this? Why is he saying you may be sure of this that everyone who is like this will not inherit the kingdom of God? If once you're saved, you're always saved, why is Paul going to such great lengths here to show us you've got to understand this. You've got to realize you can't walk this way anymore. Why is he warning them that they can't be part of the kingdom of God? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who have already been saved. He's told them for three chapters about their salvation and all the glory that it's set in. This great theology, what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ, the seal of the Holy Spirit. If that can't be lost, then why warn us? The answer is very simple. Because the danger is real. He's telling these Christians, don't walk this way because they can lose their salvation. They can choose to walk away from God. That's why he warns the Ephesians. That's why he warns us. We are to be children of light, not children of darkness. I hope you can read this passage on the left here. Ephesians 5, verse 7 through 14. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You were this way, now you're different. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. How do we discern what's pleasing to the Lord? I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but it's written in His Word. This is how we discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now there's so much going on in this passage, and we could spend, honestly, a lot of time, probably at least one whole sermon in this passage alone if we wanted to. But it boils down to one main idea. Are you walking as children of light or are you still walking in darkness? That's what it boils down to. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. That's why we want to walk in the light, because God is light. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Listen very closely to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie 
and do not practice the truth. You can say you're a Christian all day long. You can say I have fellowship with God, but if you are not walking in the light, if you're instead walking in darkness, if you're walking in your old sinful ways, you're lying to yourself. And you're lying to the people you say, I'm a Christian. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. It's about how we're walking. And notice he's not saying here, Trevor covered this too when he, when he covered this passage, so I don't want to belabor that, but we're not talking about stumbling. We're not talking about making a mistake and repenting and getting back up and going forward. He's not saying we don't have sin if we're walking in the light. He says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's about recognizing where we are. It's about not just walking in sin versus I messed up and now I'm going to get back on the right track. He's faithful and just. He'll forgive us if we confess that. But it's about where our mindset is. Now, This next passage, if you were here the last time I spoke, you, you might recognize this sort of chart format. We talked about this formula for change that Paul uses in the, in the last part of Ephesians 4. Don't do this. Do this. This is why. This doesn't follow it exactly, but it's pretty close, and I feel like it's a good way to sort of break down the last section of this passage here. So verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise. So again, he's reiterating the same message. Therefore... I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What he's saying here, look carefully then, all, this, all these things we just talked about, about walking in the light, staying away from the darkness, staying away from these immoral lifestyles. Be careful how you walk. Don't be unwise. Instead, be wise. One of the ways we do that, verse 16, making the best use of the time. Redeeming the time, I believe the King James says. Why? Because the days are evil. Making the best use of our time. Taking understanding and realizing that time is precious, that we don't have a whole lot of time to do things that are not the things of God. Let's remember that and be wise in the way that we walk. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish. How do we avoid being foolish? But understand what the will of the Lord is. So we mentioned it briefly, but brothers and sisters, this is how you understand what the will of the Lord is. It's in this book, the book called the Bible a book that every single person in this room has access to, whether it's in a book form, whether it's on your phone, whether it's an audio book, whether it's a CD, a cassette tape, an 8-track. I don't know if you could fit the whole Bible on an 8-track or not, but you know what I'm saying. It's readily available, and every single person has the ability to get in this book and learn what the will of the Lord is. And I'm telling you right now, you want to walk this walk? You want to walk in the light and the love of God? You want to walk a walk that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called? You can't do it without this. You can't do it without the Word of God. Somebody might say, well, I'm being led by the Spirit. Talk to Brother Will sometime in the next couple of days about this. He can tell you all about it. He's been studying about this. People say, I'm being led by the Spirit. And I know what the Bible says, but the Spirit tells me to do this. The Spirit says I should be doing that. All that is an excuse. It's an excuse not to do what the Bible says. It's an excuse to do whatever I want to do, and I can claim that the Spirit is leading me to do that. 
This is how the Spirit leads us. You want to be led by the Spirit? Read the Bible. That's how you're led by the Spirit. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, you might think, well, that's weird. We're just talking about being led by the Spirit. How are we filled with the Spirit then? There's nothing miraculous here. He tells us how to be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord in your heart. You know, he's not even talking about the assembly here. It's not like Paul just all of a sudden just stopped and said, oh, by the way, in your assemblies, there should be no instrumental music. We should be singing from our hearts. He's not talking about that here. He's just simply saying, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Be filled with the Spirit. Sing to one another. Get together. Talk about God. Sing about God. That's what he's talking about. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with spiritual things. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, or of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks. There's that concept again of being thankful. Giving thanks always and for everything. Being thankful always for everything that God has done for us. Can't stress how important that is. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not being selfish. Give preference to one another. Submitting to one another. Out of reverence for Christ. Just like we can forgive one another as God has forgiven us in Christ, we can have respect for one another. We can have submission to one another out of reverence for Christ for the same reason. So as we consider... Walking in love, walking in light. Surely we can understand what that means and what that looks like. It's not just about lip service. It's not just about, I say I'm a Christian, I have fellowship with God, but then I still walk in darkness. The warnings are there for a reason. And that's because the danger is real. And just because, and I want to stress this as we close. And I want you to understand this. I want it to really hit home with you because it's very important. Just because it's possible for us to walk away from our salvation, that doesn't mean it's probable. Difference between possible and probable. And understand and realize the lengths that God has gone to to make you his own. Understand what he's done and remember that and realize it. And I want to close by reading this passage in Ephesians 1 that we've read several times throughout this series. Verse 16, Paul, excuse me, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. He wants us to really get this and to understand it and to know it. What does he say? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know. What's he want us to know? I want you to know what is the hope to which he has called you. Realize the hope that you have, the hope of eternal life that you have, that you have been called to through Jesus Christ. Know that and remember that. I want you to know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Know your value to God. Understand the links that He went to. He who did not spare His own Son. You are God's glorious inheritance. You are very valuable to Him. Paul says, I want you to know that. He says, I want you to know what is the measurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Paul has expended an immeasurable, excuse me, God has expended an immeasurable amount of power to us in order to procure us as his children. 
That power is according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ. When? When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Look at what God has done for you. He is not going to let go of you easily. In fact, He's not going to let go of you at all. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, what shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ? What's going to separate us? Whole laundry list of things that happen to us in this world. Famine, persecution, tribulation, peril, the sword. Paul said, I'm persuaded that there's nothing. Nothing can separate us. Only thing that can do it is you. You choose not to walk in the light of God. That's the only thing. That's the only way it's going to happen. Look at what God has done. Look at the lengths He's gone to. He's not going to just give that up, throw it away. He wants you. He's, you're His. But you know, just like the idea of irresistible grace, saying God's going to save me no matter what. I want. It's up to me. It's up to you. You're going to make the choice to continue to serve God, to continue to walk in the light. I hope that you make that decision in your life. If you've not made the decision to begin your walk with Jesus, right now is the time to do that. There's no better time than right now to obey the gospel. If you've been taught the gospel, you're willing to repent of your sins, confess Jesus as the Son of God, and be buried with Him in baptism, there's no reason to wait. Begin your walk right now. If you want to do that, if you want the prayers of this church for any reason, please have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.